My name is J.W. Oker. I'm an author, and I like to go out and look for weird stuff. I call it oddity. For more than a decade, I've sought out oddities of nature, oddities of art, oddities of culture and history. I believe that within a tank or two of gas, of any point in this country, is some seriously cool oddity, and that we all should go check it out. This is Odd Things I've Seen, the podcast. The Lizzie Borden story has been done to death. Books, documentaries, movies, television shows. It's been told and retold and retold and retold. And for good reason. It is a fascinating story. One of murder and violence and mystery and possible familicide. But to me, the oddest part of the Lizzie Borden story is that today you can stay at the murder scene. And I did. In 1892, the bodies of 70-year-old Andrew Borden and his wife, 64-year-old Abby Borden, were discovered in their home in Fall River, Massachusetts, each one impolitely hacked to death with an axe. The crime scene pics of the bodies are grisly and all over the internet. The main suspect of the double murder was Elizabeth Borden, Lizzie. She was the daughter of Andrew and the stepdaughter of Abby. Lizzie was unmarried, 32, and lived at the house with her parents and older sister. She had every motive, a weak and inconsistent alibi, and tons of evidence against her. However, she was exonerated in court after a drawn-out case that became an international sensation back when it was much, much harder to become an international sensation. Today, almost 130 years after the crime, the murder scene, Lizzie Borden's own house, has been turned into a bed and breakfast. This was back when I lived in the Washington, D.C. area. I hadn't moved to New England yet. And me and my then-girlfriend, now-wife Lindsay, were going to do a big road trip of all six states in New England. And, of course, we wanted to put Lizzie Borden's bed and breakfast on our itinerary. However, we'd heard that due to high demand, it was impossible to get a room at the B&B without booking far, far in advance. And we didn't have that kind of advance. Still, we only had to send an email, so we did. We totally got a room. And we got Lizzie's room. Now, Lizzie's room wasn't actually our first choice. There was another room we really wanted, but couldn't get because it had been booked. But we were surprised that we got it, and excited and looking forward to staying the night at a murder scene. We arrived at Fall River on a dreary, overcast October day. The town's located about an hour south of Boston, in that little hook part of Massachusetts that rudely shoulders Rhode Island away from the Atlantic Ocean. We got to Fall River a few hours before check-in time, but that was according to plan. We had a few things to do before we could settle in to the murderess's own bedroom. That's not fair, of course. She was exonerated, so she was never officially guilty of the crime. But of course, part of the allure of the story of Lizzie Borden is that it seems like Lizzie Borden killed her father and her stepmother. Had it been a passing killer or a business associate of Andrew's, wouldn't have been as interesting a story. Anyway, back to me and Lindsay. First on our Fall River docket was the town graveyard. The cemetery is usually always first on my docket when I enter an old town or city. You can call me morbid for that if you want, but you'll lose out on much better opportunities to do that throughout this story. All the central players in the Borden fiasco are, in the words of Dave, are Lizzie Borden B&B Cook, whom we haven't met yet at this point in the story, happily buried at Oak Grove Cemetery, less than two miles away from the Borden home. 
The gate to Oak Grove Cemetery is a tall stone edifice with two gatehouses. It was in one of these gatehouses that the coroner conducted the second of two autopsies on the Borden corpses. I'll tell you about the first side of the autopsy here in a bit. We found the Borden plot pretty fast. Somebody had painted arrows directly to it. Probably somebody at the cemetery office that was tired of fielding questions about where Lizzie and her family were buried. But even without those, it would have been easy to find. The plot itself is distinguished by a tall column bearing the usual information on the deceased, names, expiration dates, beside which were six loaf-shaped stones with the first names or initials of each of the Bordens. There's Andrew, Abby, Andrew's first wife, Sarah, Lizzie was there, her older sister, Emma, and then Alice, a third sister who died in infancy. Once we'd met the people whose house we'd be staying in that night, it was time to go on to our next stop, which was Maplecroft. Maplecroft was the house where Lizzie ended up living in after she was exonerated from the crime and after she got her inheritance. The house is located in what was then the rich part of town on the proverbial hill at 306 French Street, about one and a half miles from Lizzie's original house and half a mile from Oak Grove Cemetery. The house was large enough, but didn't seem to be in the prime of its life, and it definitely didn't look like the type of house that merited a name. But there it was, incised right in the front step, Maplecroft. Lizzie wanted to name her house because that's what rich people do because their stuff is way cooler than ours. These days, the owners of Maplecroft are actually trying to turn it into another Lizzie-themed bed and breakfast. So the outfall of this more than century-old crime is two bed and breakfasts based around somebody who might have murdered their parents with a hatchet. Very, very odd. Finally, it was time to check in. Lizzie's house is at 92 2nd Street, in an area of town that is quasi-residential, quasi-business. Definitely not the kind of place you would put a B&B ordinarily. The place was well-kept. Nice, neat, forest green, with a parking lot in the back, as well as a gift shop in a separate building. The owners restored it to look pretty much exactly like it does in old photographs, except that it's in color and has a big B&B sign in the front. Inside, we were introduced to our hostess for the night. She circled our names on a piece of paper and showed us to our room, or Lizzie's room, explaining on the way that there would be a total of 10 guests staying the night at the house, and that there would be a group tour starting at 8 in the evening. It was about 4 o'clock, so we had some hours to kill. Now, normally, when you get to a place where you're staying the night, you settle in, take off your shoes, throw your under around, and call it home. The impending tour prevented us from doing this, of course, so we left the doors open and made sure our luggage was stacked unobtrusively and out of camera frame in the corner. Our room was actually more of a suite. It was two rooms. Emma's room opened directly onto Lizzie's room, so we had reserved both without realizing it. Emma's room was smaller than Lizzie's, with the only thing really of note in there being a dressmaker's dummy with an old-looking gray dress draped on it. There was no informational placard on it, so me and Lindsay made an obvious joke about getting her to try it on, scaring the other guests later at night, and then promptly forgot about it. Inside Lizzie's room was a bed, a writing desk, a dresser with a mirror, an old-fashioned cast-iron heater above which hung a stern-looking picture of Lizzie, and some glass-enclosed recessed shelving with little Lizzie mementos and books. Various mundane things like change and hair combs were scattered on the dressers to make the room look lived in, which was a nice touch, considering who would have lived there. Our bathroom was across the hall, which meant we would have to share it with the couple in the room next to us, which was the John Morse room. And then another door off of our room led directly into Andrew Borden's room. It was lockable by a small metal hook on our side of the door with an identical one on the other side. So basically, the equivalent of two paperclips was securing us from whatever type of crazy people would want to stay at a murder scene, and vice versa. We were the second room to check in for the day. The couple who had the John Morse room had already arrived, but were off downtown doing something. We took advantage of the moment by slipping into their room to take pictures of the carpet that was Abby's last sight on Earth. The John Morse room was the room we'd actually wanted to reserve when we'd originally contacted the Lizzie Borden house. 
See, this room was an actual murder scene. This is where Abby died. This is where somebody walked up behind her and hacked her in the head until she was dead. We then wandered through some of the other rooms and then downstairs to the parlor where Andrew was given his unfortunate scalp massage. The original couch wasn't there, but they'd stuck in a very close replica. We did picture duty there at the couch, and I'm a little ashamed to say that I acted in the most cliched manner possible. See, I've resisted the impulse to lie face down at the bottom of the exorcist stairs. I've stopped myself from shambling like a zombie through the Monroeville Mall where they filmed Dawn of the Dead. And I never did cop an Elvis pose at Graceland, but I couldn't resist pulling an Andrew Borden on that couch. After waiting a few moments to let my embarrassment fade, we grabbed some books off the shelf about Lizzie, took them to her room, and started reading about the murder in the house where it was committed and in the room where it was potentially dreamed up. At this point in our visit, it was time for some reflection. When we first received our reservation confirmation, the predominant feelings we had were excitement and anticipation, and that pretty much drowned out everything else. Now that we were there and getting comfortable, we finally had a chance to dredge through the muck of our feelings on exactly what we were doing there. Me and Lindsay talked about it, and honestly, we weren't really that creeped out. It took longer getting used to the idea of sharing a bathroom with strangers than getting used to the fact that we were gallivanting around a murder scene in our socks. In fact, any trepidation we felt at this point was just that we didn't know what was appropriate to do at a murder scene turned bed and breakfast. I've actually been in similar situations before. I once night toured all the spots in Whitechapel, London, where Jack the Ripper gutted his victims. That sounds like a fascinating thing to do, but in reality, it wasn't. What was once dismal alleyways and horrid gutters are now mundane parking spots and office building corners. It was a lot like touring random streets, which I guess that's what it was. I also once cleaned up a murder scene myself in a job that has permanently become my answer to the tell me something I don't know about you game. This wasn't as morbid feeling as you'd think either. We cleaned fingerprint dust off the sink, scraped crime scene tape off the windows, and cut blood stains from the carpet and mattress to shove into biohazard bags. After the initial shock of what we were doing, it pretty much felt like what it technically was, cleaning a house. And that's pretty much how we felt at Lizzie's. It was a B&B, and that's what it felt like, being in a B&B. We sat in our room for a bit, took a brief drive around town, and then came back for the tour. At 8 o'clock, we went down to the parlor. Our hostess had changed into period clothes since the last time we saw her. She asked us, in much the same way that waiters offered you dessert after a meal, if we'd like a seance after the tour. At the time, neither one of us had ever been to a seance before, so we accepted. I mean, I don't know if it's covered in any etiquette books, but if you're offered a seance in a house where violent death definitely happened, you probably should say yes. The rest of the visitors for the night slowly came down and joined us for the tour. Sleeping in the John Morse room were a pair of honeymooning ghost hunters from Ohio. In the servants' quarters in the attic were a couple from Boston who I didn't really get to know, but their main characteristic seemed to be that they were extremely age mismatched. She was much younger than he was, which is fine, but that's just what I noticed about them. And then in the Andrew Borden slash Abby Borden suite on the other side of our paperclips was a foursome from Florida who were doing New England by car. It was the perfect setup for a Tin Little Indians and then there were none type plot, and I think we were all acutely aware of that. The tour started in one of the sitting rooms, where we were told what was original and what wasn't about the house. And that basically boiled down to furniture, no, structure and woodwork, yes. We were also told that all the doors were original as well, so we were touching the actual doorknobs that the Borden family had turned themselves, and that their killer had turned. Next was the dining room. This is where the first autopsy was performed on the Bordens. The next morning, we would eat breakfast there. One of the more interesting tidbits here is that our hostess passed around the autopsy photos at this point. Not the crime scene photos, the less famous autopsy photos. The autopsy photos were as ghastly as the crime scene photos, possibly more so. One revealed the shaved back of Abby's head, complete with all the hatchet marks, 
It looked like somebody had counted off their days in jail on the back of her head. The other photo showed the autopsy eviscerated body of Andrew, the good half of his face covered in blood from the bad half of his face. Next was the parlor, where we all stood around the replica couch of death where Andrew was axed and were given a verbal reenactment, which really helped kind of set the scene and figure out how the killer approached Andrew, how he was lying on the couch, how he ended up in that final position that is made infamous in the photograph. The only other room on this level was the kitchen, which didn't exist during Lizzie's time. The parlor door opened directly to the outside, so we went upstairs. The second floor was pretty much all bedrooms and bathrooms. A thin stairwell led up to a small landing, off of which opened the John Morse room, the Lizzie Borden room where we were staying, and the shared bathroom. In the Morse room, the furniture was arranged exactly as it had been at the time of the murder, and the stretch of floor upon which Abby had been found face down was right there alongside the bed. Even the carpet that had been there at the time had been replicated. I have to admit, a twinge of envy did pass through me at this moment that I wouldn't be staying in that room. I wanted to know what it felt like to lay in that bed, staring myself silly at that spot on the carpet where such a tragedy happened. Also in this room was a dress that had been worn by Elizabeth Montgomery, Samantha of Bewitch fame, when she had played Lizzie in a television movie, which was pretty cool. After that, we went to the Lizzie and Emma suite of rooms where me and Lindsay were staying. We were surprised to find that we suddenly had the unnecessary urge to be good hosts in our room. We battled that urge heroically, and instead of offering everyone chairs to sit in and granola bars to eat from our luggage, we just stood in the corner and let the tour guide guide the tour. Meanwhile, we endured the uncomfortable sensation of people snapping photos of a place and a bed where we'd soon be in our pajamas. The tour guide told us that Lizzie and Emma had actually been in opposite rooms. Emma had had the big room and Lizzie had had the small room. But at some point, Lizzie decided she wanted the big room, and Emma capitulated because maybe she knew what Lizzie was capable of, so of course she would give her the bigger room. Also, disappointingly, nothing in the room was actually Lizzie's, with one exception. That old dress, the gray one that me and Lindsay had joked about, it had been donated by the relatives of one of the Borden's past servants. The person that donated it claimed that it was Lizzie's dress. I don't think there's any confirmation of that. But that was the claim, and it was in Lizzie's bedroom, and that was good enough for us to hear the story. After that was the Andrew Borden room, and then the smaller room off of it for his wife, Abby, and then another stairway that went up to the servants' quarters. The attic had two rooms on either side of a common space and a slanted ceiling from the angle of the roof. This is where the age-mismatched couple were staying. It was probably the spookiest place to bed down because no one else was staying up there on that floor, and it was pretty far removed from the rest of us. Also, the tour guide told us a couple of ghost stories that were related to this floor involving children and a caretaker. I don't remember the story being that interesting of a ghost story, which is obviously a sad thing to say about any ghost story. But then again, I didn't spend the night up there and we never saw that couple again after that night. They didn't show up at breakfast the next morning with the rest of us. So maybe they have a different opinion about those ghost stories. Finally, we went all the way back through the house to the basement it was like most basements I've seen. It was filled with boxes and plastic bins. They were mostly storage for the gift shop outside. But there was an original basin owned by the Bordens and Lizzie's own typewriter down there. I'd seen a documentary once in which a pair of criminologists sprayed luminol all over the ceiling and walls of this basement. Luminol is a substance that basically glows space alien blue when it contacts with any remnant of blood. In the show, when they sprayed it in the area of the ceiling, which was the floor of the spot where Andrew Borden was axed, it lit up like the Aurora Borealis. And that was the end of the tour. Next was the seance. All of the guests participated, which I guess means all of us are bad at saying no to enthusiastic offers. 
The medium introduced herself and set up her table and candles and then apologized that because her table was so small, we'd have to do it in two groups of five. So two seances for the price of one. As I mentioned, this was my first ever seance, but I learned a lot. First, when you shove 10 people into a small room and then fill it with ghosts, things get hot and stuffy fast. We weren't in the first group of five, unfortunately, but we still sat around in the dark and watched the seance. Apparently, Andrew Borden himself dropped by and an old caretaker that had died at some point. Some other ghosts. Unfortunately, the medium kept interpreting obvious creaks from the rickety little table as responsive knocks from the undead. But that's fine. That's kind of what I expect from most seances. Finally, it was our turn. And this is what I learned about seances from being involved in one. They make your back hurt, they're awkward and tiring, and they wear thin pretty fast. That doesn't mean I don't think communication with the beyond should be an easy task. Actually, quite the opposite. It just seems like it should be a little more adrenalizing when the ghosts do arrive. And I get it. I'm being influenced by movie scenes where curtains blow and music starts up and glowing things fly through the air. But still, I was hoping for maybe uh, 1% of that. The other thing I learned is that mediums can be really condescending to ghosts. A lot of them treat ghosts like children. You know the tone your voice takes when you're trying to cajole a child into doing something simple or cute? That's what she kept doing to the ghosts. Could you please move this? Touch this? Make a noise? How do you feel? Is everything okay? Maybe that's how ghosts want to be talked to, but it just felt weird to me at the time. I don't know exactly what the level of belief was from our fellow tenants of the night, but I think the level of good sportsmanship was pretty high. Nobody complained, nobody got mad, nobody made fun of the medium. We just kind of enjoyed the moment. Because when it comes right down to it, we were involved in a seance at a house where two well-documented murders happened. At that point, you don't care about the quality of it, just the fact of it. Finally, when that was done and all the ghosts were safely tucked back in the underworld, our hostess announced that she was leaving and the house was ours. We could roam it as we wished. But the thing about that was we were very tired at that point. We'd been on the road all day. Obviously, we had that late night tour, then a late night seance on top of it. We really didn't feel like hanging out or wandering the halls anymore or talking to our fellow fans of the macabre. Me and Lindsay went to bed. We made sure the hooks were latched on the door. We took some photos. And then we stood in front of that dress mannequin, the one that was supposedly wearing Lizzie's own dress, and we realized what we'd have to do next. The dress was slightly brittle, with snaps up the back, but it wasn't fastened to the mannequin in any way that it would damage it for us to take it off. And then Lizzie's dress fit Lindsay perfectly. We took some good pictures of her in various poses and various places in the room that are some of my favorite of all time, but I am terrified to look back at them in case Lizzie shows up in the background somewhere. I'll make sure I link to them in the show notes. And you can tell me if you see anything. Now came the moment we were both wondering how we would react to. Bedtime. The house was dark. All was quiet. We were lying in bed. How would we react to sleeping in this room? Honestly, the night wasn't spooky at all. The house was filled with sleeping people. The bed was comfortable. We'd had a busy day. And most important... There was no closet in this room for Lizzie to run out with a hatchet above her head screaming, get out of my room. Now, probably if I had tried hard enough, I could have freaked out both myself and Lindsay into a state of solid terror by just imagining Lizzie laying there, staring at that same ceiling, dreaming dreams of violent bloodshed and named houses. But I'd already promised Lindsay that I would do nothing to encourage the fright. That was part of the deal for us staying the night at the Lizzie Borden house. Still, privately, I did lie there and try to imagine Lizzie in the same position, scheming the state of affairs that have become legend. But I fell asleep. In fact, sleep came so fast for me 
that my girlfriend kept hitting me awake every time I drifted because for some reason she didn't want to be the only one awake in Lizzie's room. Eventually we both fell asleep and I don't remember a single nightmare despite the fact that every conversation of that day involved violent murder in some way. The next morning we awoke to the smell of breakfast which is always the best thing about staying at a B&B. Dave, our amiable chef whom I've already mentioned, fed us a breakfast consisting of what is supposed to be the Borden's last breakfast, which I assume they got from the autopsy. We chatted with everybody who was there, except for the age-mismatched couple who had disappeared in the night. The hostess told us that they had to leave early for work, but that never, ever, even to this day, has ever rang true for me. We all exchanged New England tips and listened to the ghost hunter stories of waving gadgets in the basement all night. Then we went out to the gift shop bought a souvenir vial of brick dust from the house that I have to this day sitting on the shelf in my study, set the GPS to our next point in our New England road trip, and then took off in complete disbelief of the last 18 hours and wondering what it meant about us as people, a question that we still haven't solved to this day. And that's the story of the night I spent at Lizzie Borden's house. These days, I live 40 minutes away from the place, and though I've driven past it a few times, I haven't stayed again. Something that I've always thought about and wanted to do, but just haven't. Come back next episode, and I'll tell you the story of another oddity. Probably not as morbid as this one, but certainly just as odd. This has been Odd Things I've Seen, the podcast. <laughs>